Hi, folks. Steve Urban here, founder and CEO at recruiting and consulting firm RiderFlex. If you think today's tip or guest interview can help someone you know, please share this with them. And if you enjoy listening to our show, please subscribe to our channel and hit the like button on the episodes. Finally, aside from our podcast, our day job here at RiderFlex is to provide recruiting, staffing, and consulting services. You can visit riderflex.com to learn more about us and get the information on the services we provide. And now, a quick word from our sponsor and friends at Marketing 360. Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360, fuel your brand. Liam Berryman on the Rider Flex podcast for the second time. How you doing, Liam? I'm very good. Thanks for having me, Steve. It's a pleasure to be back. Man, I'm uh, always watching your stuff, right? I keep an eye on you guys. You're growing. You're raising cash. Doing all kinds of good stuff. Uh, New Lumbo. It's newlumbo.io for the for the listeners. I want to get into the company update since this is your second visit. But first. I want to know more about Liam. Last time I went back and listened to our, our first interview. I didn't, I didn't dig in enough. I, I, I want to know more, more juicy stuff, you know, more, more mm-hmm. personal, more, more personal history. Tell us about where you grew up, your parents, siblings, give me some early life stuff. If you don't mind, before we get into the company. Wow. I, uh, honored by the request. Uh, let's see, where can I, where can I start? Um, so I grew up here in the Bay Area uh, on the peninsula in a town called San Mateo. And uh, I was there through, through all the way up to early high school. Um, and then I, I moved out to, to Colorado, actually, and completed my high school years in Colorado. Uh, what town? Uh, Highlands Ranch, Colorado. Uh, right. and I was there for three years and then, and then actually came right back out to California for school at Berkeley. Um, but my growing up, I, I, it was a wonderful time. I'm the oldest of three brothers. Um, we, you know, I, I did a lot of surfing when I was in middle school, uh, and early high school out here in California. Um, in Colorado, I got very involved with things like science Olympiad. Uh, you know, I was very into science fiction, fantasy literature, Mm. um, and uh, strategy board gaming, which I still do to this day, uh, not not very intensely like I used to, but uh, I I still keep up keep up with how that, that everything is developing. And there's a few games that I really love. Um, what's your what's and, your favorite What's your favorite strategy board game? I'm curious. Oh, there's there's a ton, but um, the the one that I've been playing the most over the last two years is a, a board game called Scythe. Um, and that one is, uh, it's kind of a, uh, futuristic, um, well, dystopian futuristic one where, uh, the industrial complex kind of hasn't advanced beyond the 1950s or sixties. Uh, and so it's like a, it's a agricultural and, um, uh, machinery and technology. And you have to, you have to kind of build your own little faction that's competing against everybody else. And, uh, Uh Okay. Um, so I've, I've done a little bit of that. Uh, like I said, right. I've been, I haven't had the time to do these kinds of things with as much as I, I would like, <laughs> to. that's, uh, that's just been, been one area of interest. Um, but yeah, grew, grew up in San Mateo, uh, grew up surfing, 
grew up with um, a lot of very cool people, people I'm still friends with to this day. And uh, then, yeah, parents divorced when I was in middle school. Oh, that's so, right. So that's the whole California or that's the Colorado thing. Which parent moved to Colorado? Uh, my mom moved to Colorado. And so uh, okay. I we were lucky enough that we we lived with my mom, but uh, we saw we, we spent weekends with my dad. And so when he when we lived out in Colorado, he would come and visit us uh, two or three times a month. Um, so we would still see him really frequently, which was very nice. And out I there, see. I did mountain biking and snowboarding and all sorts of stuff like that. The um, for the listeners, by the way, or for the viewers, they might notice that. Yeah, I see that camera flicker, but that's okay. I think we'll just roll with it. Uh, it's it's all good. People people know the podcast these days; they're not perfect. But uh, uh, let me ask you this: How did the divorce affect you? You were a young kid. What were you, a freshman in high school? And you you came home one day, and they're like, "Hey, we're getting divorced." How did how did that affect you? Yeah, it happened a few years before that. Uh, I was I was in sixth grade actually oh, when they, okay. they let us know, and then things okay. got got really finalized um, uh, my freshman year of high school. And I do apologize for this flickering. There's a couple of adjustments okay. I've made that I think should settle in, and we should see less of that. Okay. Um, but uh, that had you know, to, I, I yeah. kind of yeah, I, it had I to have an people, effect on you. Yeah, I totally did it. I told people, I, I tell people that it, I was kind of old enough to know what it meant, but young enough that I was really, uh, really affected by it. My two younger brothers were kind of a little bit too young. They didn't quite, when we were told when I was in sixth grade and they were you know, several years younger, um, they, they didn't, they didn't, you know, it wasn't, they could tell people were sad uh, and things were changing, but they didn't really comprehend what it meant. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it it's something that, I thought a lot about um, going into relationships and through my own personal relationships. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I myself am getting married June of this year. And so, All right. yeah, going into um, it, it's one of those things that I, I thought a lot about the person that I, I ended up proposing mm -hmm. to and then how our relationship worked. And um, just because I, I had that experience with my, my parents and it was really important to me to um, do, I do the best I could to, to not have that kind of thing occur. Um, but ultimately, like looking back on it, um, I was very fortunate because the experience personally, because the experience in Colorado uh, gave me changed a lot of the perspectives I had. Um, uh, okay. Uh, and the uh, both my parents remarried and are very happy in their current relationships. And so kind of everything has ended or, or continued on in a really happy manner, um, which is the best that you can hope for. And so I think it was the right thing, even if it was challenging and in, in, for a few years there. And what type of a teenager were you? Were you, uh, you know, getting down at the sheriff's office and they're calling your parents? Are you getting car wrecks? Are you, were you like, you know, lots of drugs? What were you straight? <laughs> straight, straight student? Uh, well, give me, give me some details. <laughs> that's a good, uh, how does one classify themselves? It's a great question right off the bat. Um, I didn't get into a lot of trouble, but I definitely um, looked up to people that uh, kind of went their own way. So I, I was very resistant to um, really fitting in with one particular boxer stereotype. You know, I mentioned that when I was in California, I spent a lot of time with people that spent a lot of time surfing and in the sports world. Mm -hmm. uh, in Colorado, I spent, there's, there's two different groups of people I spent a lot of time with. One were people that were doing punk rock and heavy metal shows in Denver. 
and the other group of people were applying to Ivy Leagues and, uh, you know, going into engineering fields. These are wow. all like various interests that I have. Wow. So I don't, I don't actually don't know if I fit squarely into any one of those boxes then or now, frankly. But mm. um, those are the types okay. of groups of people that I, that I hung out with and okay, feel very so much so having had a, have a richer life because of the different perspectives. No doubt about it. And I'm sure it, cha- it shaped your people skills as well to be able to navigate in those different circles and those different types of personalities for sure. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. What's the biggest trouble you ever got in anything, anything you want to share anything cool? Um, <laughs> I, I got in a lot of trouble because I gave my, my younger brothers a hard time. I don't think there's any one particular instance, but uh, okay. I, uh, I definitely felt some responsibility to, I guess, toughen them up for the, the real world. And uh, that might've gone too far in, in a lot of cases. <laughs> Now so, you're, uh, you're, t- how tall are you? You're, what are you, six, two, six, three? Uh, I'm six, one, but uh, I'd love to be six, three. So you can say <laughs> that if you want. You must hire all short people then. Cause I saw a video of you with your troops and everybody's shorter than you. I got, <laughs> so I'm, That's funny. You, I'm I telling you that, that because somebody told me that one of my advisory board members, he calls me, he goes, he goes, what do you hire all short people? So it makes it look like you're tall. Cause I'm only five eleven. <laughs> uh okay six so were you an athlete uh in high school did you play any sports or no uh i i did did the surfing um i did snowboarding those are both individual sports obviously never never competitively all always just amateur stuff um though i had friends that that were um uh pro or, or sponsored at one point in time um and then i did uh diving uh competitive diving Really? And that was with a team. Yeah. And the reason for that is that um, I, for as long as I remember, I, I felt very comfortable and enjoyed it, well anything that is that is adrenaline inducing and, and particularly flying through the air, doing flips and leaps and jumps happens to do that. So I did gymnastics when I was very young, briefly for a couple okay. of years. OK. Um, and so when it came time to you know find some sports I could do in Colorado, I started swimming and, um, after about three swim team, uh, uh, practices, I realized, oh, you really just go down to the end of the pool and then come back and you just keep doing that. And that was incredibly <laughs> boring to me. And so when they said, Hey, we're going to lose every single meet, if we don't have someone, they basically created a diving team because the way it worked is that you summed the points of what the swim team and the dive team did. And that was that total score was what determined who, which, which team won the overall competition every single time. Mm-hmm. And so we, our swim team kicked butt. They were really good, but we were losing every single meet because we would just get a zero for the dive score. So I they see. basically started a dive team and they said, you don't have to know how to do anything. You just have to jump off the diving board and not get <laughs> zeros. And I said, sign me up. Like that's, cool. I'll, yeah, I'll cool. be the one to do that part. That sounds great. <laughs> so then, so then everyone would be swimming in the pool and me and two other guys that, that joined would be practicing diving. And then whenever we got a little cold or tired, we could use the jacuzzi to warm our <laughs> muscles back up while everyone was still swimming like crazy in the pool. So that worked pretty well. That's uh, pretty cool. Happy mean, with that decision. Meanwhile, the coach probably had no idea what they were doing either. Right. They're just like, yeah, jump off. Just <laughs> They got a dive coach eventually, but yeah, it was a little, the first season was a little bit of like, yeah, we need to learn what these dives even mean. I hit the diving board a few times and all of that. It was, that was fun. <laughs> so, so I did that so, for two and a half years in high school. Um, okay. so a lot of sports right. actually. But you were obviously a smart kid and made good grades because you got into Berkeley, right? Did you go on a scholarship or no? 
no, no scholarship. Um, uh, yeah, I, I would say I, I uh, later in high school got really focused on academics. Uh, freshman, sophomore year, not at all, because a lot of things were, were changing in my life and, and it just wasn't something I focused on. But um, junior and senior year, I got really serious mm-hmm. and um, kind of, you know, made, made some commitments to myself for what I wanted to do. And then when they went and did it um, and that that turned out pretty well. And then when you got to Berkeley, you majored in stuff that was like super easy. <laughs> I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> yeah, it was a breeze. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, how, how did you decide, OK, uh, I'm going to be a bio molecular engineer like what, what how did you even what, what your dad did this tie into what your dad or your mom did or or, or what how did you decide that? no so and, it, and it's at berkeley the program is called chemical and biomolecular engineering but it's right. really chemical engineering is, is okay. the discipline um okay. i selected it for two reasons really um one is that for as long as I can remember, I've been very interested in the, the entire end-to-end process of um, creation, not in a, in a biblical or religious sense, but the, the creation of physical matter and creation and manipulation of okay. products made out of physical matter around us. I'm very, very interested in how do we move forward physical technologies into new regimes very quickly. And chemical engineering seemed to be the widest breadth that would give me the most information to understand many different spaces because I didn't necessarily know which exact one I wanted to go into. Um, And then material science, which is closely related to chemical engineering and very similar to what I just described, uh, pretty clearly became one of the disciplines I was very excited about and where I thought Mm -hmm. there could be a lot more technology advanced to products we actually use that hasn't made it there yet for that for this or that reason. So that was one reason was I was, I felt like it was a vehicle to unlock a lot of different things that I was interested in. And then the second one is that um, at Berkeley chemical engineering is the, the number, it's the number one program at the whole school. And it's the um, it's kind of tied for first or second chemical engineering program in the country. And I really wanted, and, and it's been, it was, it was, it's made very clear both by the program and by the people that have gone through it, that it's supposed to be one of the most intense and challenging undergrads that you can do. Um, and that's what I wanted uh, at the time is I wanted that intensity and that challenge. And I felt like this is a, you know, this is really the bar for excellence. And if I can see how I do against this, then that'll help me build my self-confidence and it'll uh, again, unlock a lot of doors for what I could potentially do. And was and it the, tough? Was it tough? Yeah, it was hard. Um, <laughs> and to be clear, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't complete the entire program. I took a leave of absence after the first two years and went and started in Alumbo. So, you know, one could say I didn't, I didn't actually get to the end of it, uh, and I didn't. But uh, oh, I did I all of the, all of the core coursework, which was, which was pretty tough. Oh, so you actually didn't get your bachelor's? I didn't know that. Correct. You ever thought about going back? Hmm. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't like, I never saw myself as becoming a practicing chemical engineer. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that there's other people that are much better at it than me. I I've always said, I wanted to speak that language so that I could do what I'm doing now. 
which is build companies that go and accomplish these things. And in these companies, there are incredibly talented chemists, chemical engineers, material scientists, Nalembo, and anything else that I'll work on. Mm -hmm. Um, But so I I wouldn't go, so this is a long way of saying, I wouldn't go back myself with the intention of going into the field of chemical engineering as an engineer myself, because I, again, I think other people are much, much better at that than me. Um, But if, if there was some particular goal or thing that I wanted to build, where it became clear that I needed to brush up on the knowledge of the skills or go way deeper in one area, I may go back for completing the undergrad and then get a master's in something, for example. I'm not okay. opposed to that. But for me, it's all about like, what's the goal that, you're, that you, you want to go after? What's the thing, what's the dream that you're building for? And what is it that enables you to get there? Um, I haven't felt that it's been a limiting factor on me doing what I'm doing now, but mm-hmm. I'm open-minded to the idea that it could be for something I do in the future. Well, there's a, just a few famous billionaire CEOs that dropped out of college, you know, just a few examples. Yeah, mostly computer <laughs> science guys, though. Um, there's, there's, I think there's very few of us that, that, that dropped out of chemical engineering. You'll be the first one. Tell, tell us, the, the listeners, what happened. So were you going through school and walk us into how this happened. Uh, and you came up with New Lumbo and you decided, okay, I'm going to yeah. start this company. Yeah, walk us through it. Well, it it wasn't me alone by any stretch of the imagination. So I was working with um, Lance, who is now the CTO and and VP of business development at Nalumbo and one of our three co-founders. We were working in a lab there. Those two usually don't go together. VP of sales and CTO, that's a a, a odd combo. (laughs) Yeah, with what we do, it's so so technical in nature that... um, that yeah, both of us were frequently finding that Lance's and Lance has a PhD and he was doing his postdoc at Berkeley. Oh, okay. uh, Lance's very deep technical expertise and salesmanship, because he's he's very, very good with people as well, was wow. was necessary in order to communicate what it was we did at a deeply technical level to mm-hmm. ultimately get to the sale we wanted. So great, great um, combination. Wow. Yeah, deadly, no, it, deadly, it, deadly combo. <laughs> absolutely a power player. Absolutely. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't um, get off track. So yeah, you meet Lance. No, Go no ahead. problem. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty simple story. We were working together at Cal. Um, we were working in something called the Design for Nanomanufacturing Lab, which goes back to what I was talking about earlier, You know, my interests in how do you actually fundamentally manipulate matter in order to make much, much more powerful products. Um, and nanomanufacturing, nanotechnology is the broader term, has been around for a long time, but that hasn't really manifested in, in products in the real world yet. Um, in, in a really big way. Uh, and in fact, the, the definition in a technology has kind of warped and changed over time as well. But um, we were working together and it, uh, we were working on several different projects and both of us were very clear with each other from very early on that our interests were going out there and building companies that brought new technology to the real world um, and that the kind of academic environment was a stepping stone for us. So both of us were there for the same reason. We had aligned interests. We worked super well together. We had complementary skill sets. And uh, one of the projects that we were working on started to show some, uh, it, was, it was reaching the, the top of what was academically viable. Uh, so it was going to either need to stop or it was going to need to transition into a new environment. And we decided to take the latter option and go out there and, and start the commercialization process. Um, and at, around the time we were doing that, 
we uh, got involved in a competition to try and get some initial cash for the company. Okay. And we were assigned this advisor, uh, Dave Walther, who's now our third co-founder and the president of the company and oversees our whole engineering team. And David just finished a 10-year stint with uh, Cobalt Technologies, which was a renewable chemicals company in the clean tech field. Mm. He was their first employee. He was there through four rounds of financing, and he ultimately was their SVP of engineering and was there as the company was sold to an acquirer. So he'd seen the full process of doing one of these, and we worked with him really well. So he was an advisor for, I think, about a month. And then at one point in time, the three of us were sitting in this conference room stuff all over the whiteboards around us talking at a million miles a minute about all these different ideas and, and opportunities and, and challenges that we had. And it became very clear in that moment, like, Hey, this is the co-founding team, this, this group of us. And so all three of us um, left what we were doing, quit our jobs, dropped out all these things. And the company was incorporated in May of 2016. Um, and we won that competition, which is actually the first, first cash into the company. What was the cash amount? Can you tell us? Yeah, it was a hundred grand. Uh, and that's a pretty steep amount for, for a pitch competition. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, always challenging to, um, I'll put it this way. If you're working with universities, figure out what their budgetary approval process is, because this is a competition through Berkeley. It was sponsored by Berkeley. And it turns out that their approval up to $99,999 and 99 cents is can be done at the school level. The moment you click into $100,000, you have to approve it at the, I think the Regency or the chancellor's level. And so it goes from the school into the entire University of California system. So it took us quite a while to, to get that cash in, even after we'd, we'd won it and we had the big, the big fake check. So that's my <laughs> word of warning is, yeah, figure out what- live? Well, did you guys just bootstrap it? I mean, you had your own cash. You're living on ramen noodles in an apartment, or what? Yeah, what, we how did you? We pretty much um, we were so convinced about the team and and the potential of what we were doing that we all moved. Um, well, Dave already lived in South Bay, but Lance and I moved down to East Palo Alto uh, and lived in a super low cost. So this is this is about an hour, hour and a half south of Berkeley lived in a super low cost place there together. So we moved in together and we rented a very small 800 square foot room, um, about a five minute walk from where we lived uh, in the kind of Menlo Park area by the Dumbarton Bridge. And in that 800 square feet, we grew from three people into six or seven people at one point. And it was everything from our, our warehouse to our operations center to our R&D lab, to our production facility, to our offices. So we literally, by the time we left there, um, we were at a point where someone would stand up from their desk and go walk over to do an experiment and someone else would sit down at their desk and just keep working. It was like just total hot swapping. Um, and it was, we needed to get out of there. So by the time we left, we were bursting at the seams, but at first it seemed like a lot of space. Wow. So how long before revenue did you have to, how many times did you have to raise cash? How much cash did you raise? Two-part question there. How many times did you have to raise it and how much did you raise before you actually got to revenue? Yeah. So uh, our company is, we've developed two distinct product lines. Both of those product lines are entering the market next year. Uh, and so the revenues that we've seen have come from development partners that have basically joined us for the journey and have helped to fund and say, 
and they've okay. received some sort of you know initial access or first right to market or whatnot. Um, and they've basically helped the fund and say, we believe in this. We think this is incredibly valuable. We want to be the ones that help make this real and okay. get a kind of cut of the first action. Mm-hmm. So until, uh, until the first revenues from kind of development partners or commercialization partners, we were, we were working at it for at least a solid 18 months from founding, okay. if, I, if I'm remembering correctly. And then, and, and those numbers, you know, they, they can be small at first, it's a trickle, but then once you've kind of identified who you really want to be working with and you work at building the relationships and you're really making convincing progress, which we were and we are, um, then they can get, those numbers can get a lot bigger. So I, I would say we didn't, we didn't really get to some of our breakthrough deals uh, until two and a half, you know, two to two and a half years into the company, even if there were some, some payments that came before that. Um, okay. So, okay. Can you share yeah. how much cash you've raised so far? Is that super private? Oh yeah. No, no. We we've raised 19 and a half million in wow. private funding. Um, and we've done, thank you. And we've done several million in uh, grants. So to public funding, um, some from the, the California state, some from federal, these are all public. We've made announcements about them. Um, again, I apologize for this, this video. I will, okay. I will need to be picking up a new cable for our conversation <laughs> today. Uh, um, but yeah, 19 and a half million and basically two, two, uh, rounds of financing. Um, I see. I see. Had- okay. Okay. Good. Very good. So you, you haven't spent it all yet, right? You're, you're, you're hanging. <laughs> no, we have not spent it all. Uh, when, and you project revenue starting, what'd you say, uh, next year or late this year? What'd you say? I can't remember what uh, you all, said there. All going according to plan. We'll have elements that we can launch next year, uh, okay. that will be initial product sales. Uh, and this is a matter of, you know, the products that we make are, are we're making new materials and so they need to be, they need to go through both the qualification process where mm-hmm. a customer, an OEM or a brand qualifies that the materials have the performance that they're looking for, qualifies that they have the durability they're looking for, qualifies that they, you know, have no toxic you know, chemicals in them that they don't want mm-hmm. to be using. And then after that, and or in parallel to that, you have to go through a design phase where it's like, okay, once a company's convinced that we can use these materials and they will do what we believe they're going to do, then it's, okay, how do we integrate them with our product? Mm-hmm. And if necessary, how do we integrate production with our production? So that's kind of where we are today is we've built these products, we've developed them, we've tested and validated them for a very significant period of time and at the highest level. We've convinced customers, OEMs, and brands that these products are going to change the way that you can do things or change your product substantially. They're going through that qualification process and looking at production and assessing what scale-up looks like. And we have deals in place for going to market. So we're working through the phases of that right now. Mm, Okay. Layman terms, give the listeners who have no idea what you're talking about as far as what you're making, you know, just a regular guy, what... What will the product, what will your technology do to a product? Can you give us like a specific example of like, I don't know what it'll do to a mic or whatever, what are yeah. examples you want to give? Yeah, of course. So I, just in zooming out before we, we zoom in on that question, what Nalumbo is doing is enabling the electrification transition to continue occurring and continue occurring at a faster clip and making sure that we are not reliant on toxic chemicals 
okay. in the 21st century for the products that we build. Okay. Um, the, the, the element, the problem that's at the nexus of those two things is that uh, existing solutions for frost, water, and ice, which are things that obviously occur naturally in the environment, but impact and, and hold back many products that we interact with, mm. um, there's no really well-developed solution today. The ones that do exist are uh, water repellent, repellent and breathable. Uh, you might be familiar with membrane-based technologies or Vortex, but these okay. typically rely on perfluoroalkyl substances, PFAS, mm. which we now know to be toxic, carcinogenic, immunosuppressive. Mm. Um, so these are cancer-causing, they make you sicker. Um, and in some cases, PFAS actually has led to declining fertility rates in men. Uh, so these are really things that we want to get out of our product. But we have no great substitute solution. And at the same time, um, many of the heating and cooling technologies that we use, so air conditioners would be the term that most viewers will be aware of. Mm. Heat pumps are another one. And heat pumps are actually the glo most globally used system uh, outside of the U.S. Um, many of these products are made fundamentally more inefficient. Uh, both from a, an energy perspective and from actually using them, from the operation of them, from the development of frost and ice. So mm -hmm. if we can create a technology that uh, substantially decreases or eliminates the development of frost and ice on these materials, we can enable them to be much more effective energy-wise. We can enable them to be smaller and lighter. Uh, and when we can able, enable them to run for a longer period of time, so that they can be more effective in the business that they're being used by. So um, let me let me now bring it to, to the, the no, thank you question that. that you asked. Yeah, yeah no, of course. It. Um, it's a very it's a little bit of a complex story because we've innovated on the materials, but we're integrating them with products that it changes the way that the product actually functions in its given environment. So the you know one example I can give is that electric vehicles have needed okay. to adopt heat pumps. Uh, which is again this heating and cooling system uh, in order to heat and cool the battery. This is the first time they've needed to do this because previously internal combustion engines were available and you could just use the heat from that to heat the cabin of the car. Um, but the critical bottleneck for these heat pumps is that they develop frost and ice in cold climates. This is one of the big reasons that Teslas have this 40 to 50% reduction in range that you see in Norway. And there's a lot of stories about this. I so see. by solving the frost and ice problem with a high performance, durable, non-toxic solution, we can make that system more effective, which affects the overall range potential of an electric vehicle in cold climates. So again, going back to the original thing I said that by solving this kind of arcane, very technical problem, Nalembo can really encourage the electrification transition more quickly. I'll give you one more example. That same type of system, the electric vehicle heat pump. Um, that was taken from the stationary heat pump, which is basically an air conditioner you can run in both directions. You can use it to both heat and cool your house. Mm -hmm. And it's powered by electricity. It's not powered by natural gas. So heat pumps are the V replacement product option for gas, natural gas-fired furnaces, which is one of the ways that you, you heat your home. Mm -hmm. But again, heat pumps have this critical problem that they cannot function well in cold climates. So right now they are limited from adoption in, in the U.S. And, and in many other countries because still the natural gas fired furnace is currently a cheaper option and more reliable because you don't have this, this problem of frost generation. You just need to burn natural gas to generate heat. 
If Nalumbo can help to solve this cold climate frost and ice problem for heat pumps, we can dramatically expand the addressable market for stationary heat pumps. Mm. And again, encourage a faster transition to full electrification. Mm. This is already happening. California, for example, has mandated that uh, it, for new builds, you cannot have natural gas even running to the home. So every really? appliance, yes, every appliance must be electrified. Didn't and there, there are other countries and states that are following suit with that example. Um, wow. It seems to be the preferred direction, but there's still this, this inability for the industry to deploy heat pumps everywhere the way that it wants to. So we help that to happen. Are heat pump manufacturers and Tesla two of your target customers? <laughs> Both of those are highly interested in, in solving this problem. It's a tough problem. Um, it's something that you know ha- we've designed around it for a very long time. Uh, we basically accepted that when you make something cold, frost and ice will start to build on it. And we've created you know, lots of hassle to build around that problem. Nalembo goes right for the problem and solves it with a new material, which is a very unique approach compared to what has been done before. Mm-hmm. Very good. I appreciate that overview. So how's the pressure right now from the cash you've raised to get to get to revenue are you know are you feeling pressure is it talk to us about the stress of that how you're dealing with investors the kind of phone calls you get i know that some of the some of your investors are going to listen to this so you know you got to say nice things about them but (laughs) no i don't have to um but i I, but i will because we've selected partners and in part partners have selected us funding partners that understand what we're doing and are supportive of really big transformational change, even if it will take time to get there. Okay. So, you know, they trust us that we have the technical expertise. They trust us that we have the operations expertise and the strategy to go after these opportunities and to be making the right steps towards them. Mm-hmm. Um, and our, our investors and our board are, are mostly focused on how can we bring the best possible resources and opportunity to the company? whether that's you know, rounds of funding, whether that's specific strategic partnerships. And we spend the vast majority of our time talking about that um, mm-hmm. rather than, and I have seen this in other cases, second guessing you know, development pathways or second guessing, um, is this the right product to go after? Like we have the trust of our supporters that we have selected mm-hmm. the right things because we know the most about it. We've been building in this space for more than five years now. Um, and I feel very, very honored for that. I mean, we, we spent the time to get to know funders before we brought them onto the company. Um, and this is one of the things we look for, but it's never perfect. When you're doing a funding round, you can always accidentally bring somebody in that, you know, yeah. turns out they don't, have, they either don't have your best interests at heart or they just don't quite get it. And I don't feel that we have that issue at Nalumbo. I feel that our challenges and our issues are always focused on the fact that this is actually just a really hard problem to solve. And, there, and we have some pretty tough markets that we're trying to scale in and change. Um, and that's our, that's our challenge. And we can just focus on that rather than worrying about all the like politics, for example, that can occur at a board level and that, that you know, would be personally really, un, uh, really unsatisfying to be a part of. I don't have to deal with any of that. So the pressure is always there, but it's, it's definitely a huge part of it's self-imposed. Um, and we, you know, we're, we're learning all the time how to go faster. And that's, that's kind of what we, we try to focus on. If you had to give one or two tips to an aspiring entrepreneur listening to this episode that is about to start raising cash, 
they haven't raised any yet, but they're, they're getting ready. Anything you want to tell them? Um, you, know, you touched on, you touched on, you know, the importance of selecting the right people to be around and work with, but beyond, yeah. Yeah. Beyond that. Any, yeah. Anything you want to share? I'm not sure that I have any breakthrough advice that's uh, <laughs> going to be radically better than what's already out there. Um, because some of it is you can read it and go, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And then once you experience it, you're like, Oh, that now I, I feel that viscerally. And so it, I'm going to, you know, I learned from it a little, you're going to learn from it a little bit differently that way. But I think spending the time to pick the funding partners uh, that you really believe are going to be, you know, incentivize the same way you are for the long run. Um, recognizing that right now we're in a period of time where the world is awash in capital. And so there, you know, this isn't always true, but right now there is almost definitely going to be someone else willing to take the call, even if you say no to the current investor that you're, you're considering. Um, so, you know, you don't, I've just seen a lot of people take deals because they think it's the only deal that they can get. And, and right now that's just, that just doesn't seem to be true. Um, mm. There's, there's a lot of opportunity out there. Mm -hmm. um, know why you're raising the money and, and from whom and have your outcomes pretty well, as well as you can identified. Um, definitely don't be raising money just to raise money. Don't raise money because your friends are raising money. If you hang around other entrepreneurs. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, really, really try to characterize your business and figure out what its needs are. Because uh, the worst thing is not maybe not the worst thing, but a bad thing, an unhelpful thing is to realize after you've taken a substantial amount of money that you know you're building a business that doesn't match the incentives of the funders that you've brought on, mm. because then you just have a very painful situation um, right. that you're kind of obligated to. So just be be aware of that. You've had to learn how to be a CEO on the fly. You, you know, from a very young age, which is super challenging, it's, it's hard to be a CEO, period. It's hard to run a company, very difficult job, really hard when you're a young man that didn't get a chance to come up in the ranks of another company and, you know, have years and years of mentoring before you were thrown into it. Mm. What, what advice would you give to a young CEO kind of caught in the same situation where they, they woke up one day and they're like, Oh shit, I got 30 employees. I guess I better figure out how to be a CEO. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I actually like that situation a lot more than the situation of, well, I'm going to start a company because I want to be a CEO. I think mm. that's a really, that's a pretty poor motivation. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean that it, you, it's not just, just not the right, the right reasons. So, so the, the situation of, oh crap, I went after this thing I really believed in and now there's 30 employees and we're making money or we're, we're not making money and we got to figure out what to do. And I got to really step it up and be a real CEO. That's a, I think that's a, like a pretty healthy, natural thing, even if it mm. feels incredibly scary. Um, but I, I apologize. Your, your question was, yeah, what advice I just, would I have? Yeah. What advice would you give those? They're, 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 they're having that scary moment they're in that situation where either revenue started or something, something happened. There was a pivot point to where they, you know, 
yeah, they had a couple of co-founders they were having to deal with, and that's fine because they like drinking beer with those guys, and that's all cool because they've been friends for a long time. But then, boom, all of a sudden, they got 20 people they're supervising, and they've never really been in that large of a management role. Yeah. Um, I, lots of advice. We could fill a whole, whole <laughs> podcast <laughs> with it. But, um, uh, you know, one thing that's really important to remember is that the CEO role is a role. It's not who you are. And so there may be times where you are, are playing the part of the CEO um, because you need it to be perceived a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's times where even with your own team where you can be more of yourself and that's okay. You don't always have to occupy kind of one preordained uh, uh, role of the way that society sees the CEO. And in mm-hmm. fact, some of the more effective ones that I've met are able to very fluidly figure out which um, characteristics are the most helpful for getting the outcomes that we want to see in, in different situations, um, and but are, but are never straying very far from who they actually are. So you get that sense of authenticity, which is, I think, pretty, pretty important and pretty special. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I would, you know, just to, to go directly to your question, recognize that there are particularly right now a lot of people probably going through something similar to you and go find those people in those groups and learn from them um because it it's if you make it a solo job it'll be miserable and you'll probably be less successful Mm -hmm. recognize that if you've raised money and started to hire a team your job first and foremost is is people management which is a horrific term but it is it is making sure everyone understands what we are trying to do and then making sure that, the, that people are in the right places to be the most successful in what they can do well towards that goal. And that is way harder to actually do in practice than it sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, and, but a lot of people that have, you know, first time CEOs um, don't realize for a long time that like, they're not actually supposed to continue doing individual contributor work. Like they, they just will kind of keep cranking with their normal habits uh, mm-hmm. and they won't change in that regard. Uh, recognize that at times you do need to be the one that is standing up and confidently representing the direction that the company is going to go and is providing that confidence to everybody else. And that will feel very scary to you, but you need to make sure that that is um, clearly and as confidently as you can communicate it because people need that. And that is one of the, the aspects of the role of CEO. Um, and then Man, let's see. I'm, I'm rambling a little bit here. That's like okay. So you, many different thoughts coming to mind. Yeah, we could do a whole episode on it. You know, I'll just take a take a pause right there and and emphasize: if you are starting a company, if you want to start a company because you made something, you created something, a product, a software, or maybe you're a service provider because you're a good electrician or plumber or whatever, and you started a company. If you want to, if you want to scale that company, you will quickly turn into a people manager and a leader, and you won't be doing the tactical thing yourself. And and if you're That's not, right. if you're not comfortable with that, if you're not ready for that, if you don't want to do that, if you don't want to be a coach and a leader then you shouldn't scale it up uh, because, because that's what your job is going to be. You, you won't be in the R and D science lab creating the thing anymore. You'll be managing and hiring and developing the team that does that for you. So you will quickly turn into a, a people, a, a leader of people. And that's what your job will be uh, mm-hmm. very, very quickly. Yeah. 
let me ask you this. I want to ask you a couple of uh, outside the lines questions really quick, kind of moving into some, some topics sure. that I think are, are facing CEOs. Before I do that, though, one more time, I just want to make sure we get this in here. Newlumbo.io. Newlumbo.io is uh, where you can go to learn more about the company. Are you in the middle of a cash raise, by the way? Are you interested in talking to further investors or what are you doing anything currently? Uh Always interested in talking to investors if you think that they're aligned with us. There's still, there's been a lot more activity, but there's still uh, relatively little activity in the deep tech space compared to the overall ecosystem. So always interested in aligned investors. We don't have an open cash raise at this moment. We have a couple of, uh, I will call them strategic discussions that are underway okay. that may precipitate it to something like that in fairly short order though. So it's a good time to get to know us. Okay. And Liam Berryman as well. You can find him on LinkedIn and connect with him there and drop him a note. Okay. Yeah. I would actually say our website is, is a little bit out of date at this point. We've focused on building a couple of things that have been uh, not announced and have been behind the scenes working with okay. confidential partners. Okay. So if you, if you come in, if you come to me directly and uh, get to know us, I can provide some more info about that, but it won't be available on our website right now. And by okay, the time it's on our website, it'll be too late to get involved. <laughs> okay, very good. I want to ask you a couple of uh, questions here that I think are, are facing CEOs in today's world. First one is, what's your take on remote work, hiring remote employees versus making employees come to the office? What's your, what are you currently doing and where do you see that going? Uh my answer will be a little bit easier, I think, than some other folks. We're, we're a company that has been predominantly research development and engineering uh, based in terms of resources and resource allocation. Uh, and then, and, you know, with a growing fraction focused on, on business development within the past 18 months. Mm -hmm. um, and so the vast majority of our employees actually need to be at some kind of lab in order lab or production facility in order to do their jobs. So, you know, we had a lot of changes around and a lot of things to figure out during COVID, but uh, now our policy is, uh, it, you know, please be in the office uh, unless you absolutely don't need to be in the office because all you're doing, for example, is processing some data or creating a presentation, then you can work from home. So it's okay. a flexible strategy, but with the default and the emphasis on being in the office, and then uh, the, to the management team who by and large are not collecting data. And so they could be working remote more consistently. Um, we've asked them to, again, with the majority of their days, be in the facility as a show of support to the entire team. So I'd yeah. say, you know, <laughs> we probably see 80 to 90% attendance from our entire company at our headquarters in Hayward and our satellite facility down there um, every day of the week. Uh, okay. And then people have this option if they need to, you know, go to an appointment, they can just do the rest of their, their day remote, or if they are just working on, you know, just working on stuff they can work on at home, they can work remote. But we've, we've tried to keep our culture centered on the office, for, only for the reason that a bunch of our employees do need to be there. And we don't want them to feel like they've been abandoned or anything like mm -hmm. that, right? We mm -hmm. want them to, to get, get that support. Um, mm -hmm. And we enjoy the, the experience of being in the office. Um, gotcha being together as a team so how about this uh how about this one touchy subject uh with the covid and uh, the masks and the vaccinations and you know i i guess you know 
you got the Biden administration was going to roll out this this mandate, to, you know, recently. And then now the Supreme Court's like, now nah, you can't do that. And, and then, you know, so and then I see I see some CEOs that were gonna they were gonna force some rules. And now some now some CEOs are backing off and some other CEOs are just kind of like staying in neutral and kind of like, OK, let's just wait and see. It's a tough one, I think, for, you know, first of all, like we said, running a company as a CEO on a regular day is tough. Throw yeah. in stuff like this and you're like, okay, you know, most CEOs are like, holy crap, I'm just trying to get through my day here. What are your thoughts? What do you see happening? What are you doing? Yeah. So um, we, first of all, this is one of the things that because we're not a public company right now, I get the the luxury of being a CEO that doesn't necessarily need to uh, respond to constant media inquiry. Uh, I'm fairly certain at some point in time, I'll be uh, chief executive of a public company. Um, but, uh, just cause that's a pretty natural route to go for when you're, when you're building things and you want to take them to a conclusion or to an outcome. Mm -hmm. Uh, but right now I don't, I don't like, we don't have to answer to any particular <laughs> media inquiry or, nice. or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just gives us more flexibility in being mm -hmm. able to actually do the right thing without all of the, the assessment yes. of like how, how to interpret this, this decision that we've made. Um, but we, very, you know, very clearly have not uh, put in place a, a vaccine mandate at our company. It's been okay. voluntary. If people okay. want to let us know, um, they can. Uh, and we have done, I think, two anonymous polls of, you know, what's your vaccination status that we've had, you know, pretty much full responses to from what I can recall. Mm -hmm. um, you know, given that we're mostly in person, I think most people have felt like they just want to get it done because that's, you know, they're happy to do it and there's no reason not to, uh, from their perspective, but, uh, we have not, thankfully we've not needed to, to do anything. Uh, we haven't, I haven't needed to enforce anything at this point in time. Um, and don't really hold a view. You know, if I, again, if I was CEO of a company of a thousand people, you know, I'd probably have a different take on this and it'd be a well-defined document. Yeah. And, uh, I'd have had legal clear it before I'd be talking about you with about it, but we're a team of 20 people. <laughs> we all look out for each other. Um, we, we're all like, you know, it's this re remote work policy. So also if you, if you're even feeling bad, like just don't come into the office, mm -hmm. um, like work from home or just take the day off. Um, and if you've tested positive, like, yeah, take, you're taking five days at home working from there, we'll send you data or, or you'll just take the time off if you're not feeling well. And yeah. so we've always just been flexible and figured out what worked for people and haven't needed to, or haven't, haven't had any requests to enforce anything, which is, has just kept it kept it okay. nice fair enough one more one more one more sensitive one please no, by, ask by all the sensitive ones you want <laughs> by the way for the record uh no matter how you feel about vaccinations and masks and i'm talking to the listeners right now no matter what side of the fence you're on about any of this stuff surely 99 percent of the people listening to this episode surely we all don't we all want to get together and hang out and have fun and go to pubs and hug and shake hands and have beers. I know I do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it was actually a big relief when we, when we could open up the facility again, um, because you know, I, I'm not going to go into all the yeah. dynamics of a team, but like, it yeah. was just a really healthy thing to be back together. And, um, and that was very fortunate. We are, we are social creatures. I'm pretty sure we're not meant to live in little caves by ourselves. <laughs> right. 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 Um, 
another another la- last uh, sensitive one, and then we'll do the wrap wrap it up. Uh, what do you think about CEOs going on social media? I think I already know your answer. Uh, some of these CEOs they go on social media and they they take sides on sensitive topics and they blast out their opinions on stuff. Not just COVID. I mean, any whatever the whatever the hot topic is of the month. You know, they go on and they're you know they're you know if the topic's like what what color is better, purple or yellow? You know, they're like oh, purple's better, and if you like yellow, then you're bad or whatever. Yeah. What are your What are your thoughts on this? I'm. I mean, you probably already picked this up. I'm. I'm pretty against the ex- anything that's extremely divisive. Um, yeah. And and you know trying to trying to bucket us all into camps of this or that um, camps yeah camps <laughs> I, I I you know I I get that it's necessary sometimes I get people want to be playing for a team I, I would love to see a world where like Team America is the one that most people in this yeah. country want to be a part of versus some some smaller relative fraction <laughs> of that I don't think it's the world we live in anymore sadly. Um, given that that's not the world we live in anymore, I can understand why people try to become the kind of king of their own fiefdom by putting forward strong views and then seeing who, who will follow that. That's yeah. not a, that's not an approach that I think is, uh, very interesting or exciting to me personally, but I understand why people do it. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a pursuit of power thing to an extent. Um, mm-hmm. I just, you know, I would hope that we have enough still strong willed, still powerful people that are looking a little bit longer term than, um, than that mm. kind of approach right now. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not commenting on this, not looking at it from any particular side or angle or perspective or political party or aisle or, or whatever, just from the, uh, yeah, the intense divisiveness doesn't seem to be helpful for all of us. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, stirring that up to get attention on you is just not something that's in my in my style or that I'm interested in. But like I said, I can, I can logically understand why it might be valuable to somebody else to do. There's an incentive to do it. So you, you, you answered just about like I thought you would last great answer, by the way. Love it. Uh, Last question. I know we're out of time right now at this stage in your life, if you had to, by the way, congratulations on getting engaged. No, thank you. Same girlfriend that you had when I interviewed you the first time, I'm assuming. As far as I can remember. Yeah. <laughs> yes. We've been together for, it'll be nine years in April. That's, that's great. I'm super happy for you. Thank um, you. If you had to define your core purpose in life now, moving forward, and you had to put your quote core purpose into like a sentence, what would that sound like? Uh, so my core purpose in life is to build enable others and live my own incredible dreams. And I I connect all of those things together. So Mm -hmm. I constantly want to be building things ever since I was a kid. I it's, it's not just physically building things, but building, um, uh, building organizations, building people, building teams, building towards vision. Um, Those are the things that to kind of get me up that aspect of building and that feeling of that we're making progress, we're doing something together and it's really worthwhile. Um, enabling others, that second part goes hand in hand with that to me. I don't think the building happens without enabling others. Um, and so it's, it's something I try, I do my best to wake up every day and think about 
What can I do to enable my, my you know, current fiance, future spouse? What can I do to enable my family? What can I do to enable my friends and the businesses that I'm, I'm working on? Like, how can I take those to such a cliche term, but how can I take those to the next level? Like, what is it that might be blocking people? What is it that they might be worried about? What can I do to alleviate those things and help them get to whatever they want to get to? Um, and then living incredible dreams is the last part. Like, I, I think that's one of the big purposes of life. I'm not going to make a big philosophical or metaphysical statement about, about it, but I think that, you know, finding out what your dreams are and then living them or creating them or making them happen um, is, is like one of the best things you could possibly do. And I want to do that, not just for myself, but I want to enable that for others. So um, others individually and others, like as a, as a group of people moving towards a, a consistent goal. So that's the, the sentence that would come to mind for me. Um, that's how I would state it. Good stuff, my friend. Liam, thank you so much for being on the Rider Flex podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, sure. Thank you for having me, Steve. It's a pleasure. Looking forward to coming back.